The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Bob, this morning, leading us before the throne of grace. Um, at this time, I'd ask that you please open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and this morning we're going to begin in verse 20. In the year 2011, it was a strange year for many reasons, but one of them being that Kelly Clarkson released a song which became a hit single called Stronger. This was a painfully memorable song that sticks in the mind of anyone who hears it. And it's famous for saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This song was nominated for three Grammy Awards and probably more appropriately, two Teen Choice Awards. However, most people probably don't know that this is actually a quote that was borrowed from Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, Many philosophers have debated the truthfulness of the claim that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But I can guarantee you that when Nietzsche actually died of pneumonia on August 25th in the year 1900, he learned something that is not open to debate by any reasonable human being. And I'm going to give you this very important, very simple philosophical principle for free, and you can use it whenever and however you would like. And it is simply this. Whatever does kill you, kills you. You can take that to the bank. It's true every time. Allow me to orient us this morning by reminding you where we are here in the book of 2 Timothy. Paul has written us, has written this letter specifically to Timothy. And he has written to encourage this young pastor to encourage living boldly for Jesus Christ. He is teaching him and reminding him to love Jesus with all of his heart because it seems that his zeal for Jesus has begun to wane as persecution and false teaching have risen. Paul is writing this letter from a prison in Rome. This is the last letter that he wrote before his head was unceremoniously removed from his shoulders by order of execution from the Roman government. Paul is not minimizing the challenges or dangers of the world. He is not minimizing hardship that comes with standing up against the world or against the Roman government for that matter. He knows full well what it means to stand firm in the midst of trial and persecution. However, in chapter 2, Paul is ensuring Timothy that the more clear and present danger is not the world, it's not the government, it is the false teachers who are arising within the congregation. The message of the gospel and the growth of the kingdom of God cannot be stopped by earthly kings or earthly nations or any attempt to outlaw outlaw God. Even the most violent of persecution in the church's history has not resulted in a snuffing out of the church, but only the advancement of God's kingdom and his glory. China in the world today is one of the more restricted places in the world when it comes to freedom of religion. The government there forces all allegiance to their political authorities and rulers rather than Christ. And that is not unlike or dissimilar to what was taking place in Rome under Caesar. It's difficult to get any clear statistical data from China because they don't keep good records of who Christians are and are not. Most Christians do not want the government to know that they are Christians, so it is difficult for obvious reasons. But the most modest estimates suggest that there are at least 40 million Christians in China. Other studies from places like the United Nations and the American Council on Foreign Relations suggest that that number is actually much closer to 200 million. Do you understand what I am saying right now? There are more Christians in a very restricted part of the world than there are in the most free country in terms of religious liberty that has ever existed in the world, which is the United States. You cannot stop the church by making a law against it. You cannot stop Christ from building his kingdom. So I want you to see Paul is certainly correct. That is not the primary danger. And when he writes to Timothy, he is telling him, that is not the main thing you must worry about, Timothy. The greater danger is what is festering inside of the congregation. Last week, Gene gave a great illustration of gangrene and the way that it rapidly infects the body and systematically destroys it. And that imagery is the one that Paul 
used and employed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he selected that kind of picture to describe the false teachers and the problem of the spreading of their false doctrine. So with that in mind, that is how we now come to our passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 20. This is God's word. This is the most important thing you'll hear all day. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Let's pray. God, this is a somewhat challenging passage for multiple reasons. It is going to challenge our sensibilities. It is going to challenge our sense of fairness. It is going to challenge our sense of complacency. It is going to challenge us to live a life that is holy. And God, even as I have prepared this sermon, I have felt the strain of that challenge in my own life, recognizing that you are calling me to be something I am not completely there. Lord, I pray that for our church, we would not minimize the call to live as vessels for Christ just because we are not yet there. I pray that this would be a calling to us, drawing us closer, causing us to be more fervent to live for Christ every day. And Lord, I pray that as we see this, we would recognize exactly what your word teaches us to do in relationship to false doctrine and teaching. God, please, I pray today, you would give me clarity, you would give me purpose, you would give me compassion as I preach. Lord, let me do this not standing in my own strength or wisdom, but of course in the spirit that you have given. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth and be heard by his work today. Amen. Today we're going to have a very simple outline. It's just three parts. First of all, we're going to talk about one big house. Then we'll talk about two kinds of vessels. And then finally we'll close with ways to pursue holiness. Beginning with one big house, we see this. Paul is going to present a metaphor here to remind Timothy exactly of who Timothy is in Christ. And he's going to remind Timothy, because of this metaphor, what Timothy is called to do. Paul begins by comparing the church to a great, big, enormous house. Everybody who lives here in New York, at least everyone who is in this room, lives in a home that is enormous compared to the average human being who is even alive today. Not to mention the people who were alive during the first century. We live in miniature mansions, and we live like kings every day. In America, everyone has access to food in some way, shape, or form. Please understand, we are immensely blessed. But the term for great house that he's using here is something much larger than that. This is a significant, palatial, multifamily dwelling that he is speaking about here. And in order for us to understand the argument that Paul is making, I think we have to first understand why he is using this metaphor. So what I'm going to do at the beginning of this sermon is just take this first idea of this big house, and I would like to make some clarifying remarks about the very nature of the church. What is the church? If you ask a lot of people that, they'll probably give you many different answers. But it's necessary in order to understand what Paul is saying today to get a grounding of what the Bible actually teaches us about the nature of what the Bible calls the church. So we're going to just consider a few quick truths about the church And I want you to keep these things in mind as we go through the remainder of the sermon. Now, you may have questions about these. I'm going to move through them very fast. If you do, this is what I would love to talk to you about. So please don't hesitate uh, to come and speak with me if if I'm moving too fast at some point. First of all, I want you to see that the church is not a building. Now, this is obvious. The church is not a building. It's the bride of Christ. When I first moved here to New York from Italy... I remember having a conversation with a man who was of Italian descent. He said he was Italian, but he didn't speak Italian, so he's not fully Italian. He had um, been there, though, and as I was telling him that 97% of towns in Italy have no gospel evangelical witness of any kind, he was absolutely incredulous. He didn't even believe me. He, He said, you must have your numbers all wrong. He said, I've been there. I've seen it. I've driven around. I've been on the buses. I've been in the cities. I've seen there are churches everywhere. 
But what this man had failed to understand is those buildings did not actually contain a church. The gospel is not present there. In fact, in many of them, they don't even have a group gathering that claims to be a church. Rather, they just have a museum. Oftentimes, they even charge people to come in and look at the beauty of the building. But there is no church gathering there. So I want you to understand the church is not a building. This is not a church because it is a building. This is just a space for us to gather. The church is a group of people that Jesus came from heaven to seek and to save. The church is his flock. They are his sheep of his pasture. The church is his bride that he adores. The church is made up of saved people. That brings us to the next thing that we need to understand about the church, and that is that the visible church is mixed. And by that, I mean to say that there are both believers and unbelievers that are gathering together all around the world in buildings that are called churches right now. Both saved people and unsaved people sing praises to God. Both saved people and unsaved people listen to sermons. Both saved people and unsaved people pray. The visible church is made up of all sorts of people, both saved and unsaved. The visible church is made up of anybody who says that they are a Christian. That brings us to our next point, and very, very important that if you get that one, you must also have the other side of the coin. The true church is not mixed. God is not confused about who is and who is not part of his kingdom. He will be the one who separates the sheep from the goats, and he is going to be the one who separates the wheat from the tares. The true church is made up of everybody who has ever been born again and believed the gospel for the forgiveness of their sin. So, why do we have a visible church? Let me explain a couple of reasons, and I think this will help us comprehend what Paul is getting at today. It is a good thing that the church is mixed. It is good because it means that we are welcoming to those who are unsaved and who do not know the gospel but need to hear it and believe it. It is a good thing because many of us in this room have children who are currently listening to a Bible story about the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that they can understand it in their level, and they are hearing about that constantly. It is good because there are people who walk in these doors right there in the back of this building, and they come in and they sit down, and they do not have a relationship with God, even even though they think they do. So it is a good thing that the church is mixed because they are confronted with the reality that you are not saved by works, but you are saved only by grace. And it is a good thing that unbelievers are therefore confronted by the truth. So in that sense, it is a wonderful, glorious thing that the church is mixed. I'm not going to get a, a great deal into the history here, but if you go back, uh, back into the 1600s and and um, early 1700s, there's a debate with Calvinists. Should we even proclaim the gospel to those who are not saved? Is it our job to do that? And the answer is yes. Yes, we are called to do that. Yes, we are to call people to repentance and faith. And it is a good thing in that sense that the church is mixed. But here's the next thing. It is a bad thing that the church is mixed. And by that, I mean it is a bad thing that the church is mixed in the manner that Paul is talking about in this passage. This is what Paul is addressing with his metaphor. It is a bad thing that unbelievers are influencing the church. It is a bad thing that unbelievers are now in a place of prominence in the church. It is a bad thing that Timothy and the elders at Ephesus had not dealt with a deadly false teaching that was festering like cancer in their church. So please understand, it is a bad thing to blur the distinctions between saved people and unsaved people in the church if you know that somebody is saved or unsaved. Now, you might wonder how we distinguish between the true and the visible church. How do we distinguish those people that genuinely are saved? And the answer is that we can't fully. But another answer is we try. And the best way that we have is through church membership. Church membership is the way that our little church here, yes, our little tiny congregation, says to the world, we believe this person belongs to Jesus Christ. We believe that this person has truly understood the gospel. We believe they are following after Jesus. They are part of the family of God. They will spend eternity in heaven. We are going to grasp our hands together with them, and we are going to march ourselves collectively towards heaven, just like the Bible tells us to do. So the best way that we have is church membership. If you're not a church member yet, 
I would love to talk to you about that and just discuss what church membership is and the value of it as we declare to the, the world what it looks like to be in Christ. But here's the last thing that I will say, kind of in this area of our thinking this morning, and that is that sometimes we get it wrong. It is possible and even likely that somebody could go through all of the membership processes and they could get through the interview with the elders and they could sit with us and discuss with us what they know to be true about the Word of God and they could simply be very good at deceiving us or maybe even really good at deceiving themselves and they could get the stamp of approval from the elders, they could go before the church and get the stamp of approval from the congregation and become members yet never actually know Jesus in a saving way. I want to tell you a quick story. I, I asked for permission to, to share with you from one of the people who is a member here. Luke Palamon is a member of our church. And the way that he got saved is fascinating. He went to our, our mother church, um, North Shore Baptist. He began attending there and desired to become a member there. And as he began going through the membership process, it became clear to him he actually didn't know Jesus Christ in a saving way. And as the elders were interviewing him, they were revealing to him there's more to the gospel than you have actually understood. And over the next several weeks, and you, you can uh, speak to him about this, he loves to share his testimony. The Lord opened his eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is and what the gospel is and what it means that you were saved by grace alone. And God saved him. To God be the glory. Sometimes we get it right. And sometimes God uses those, barrier, those barriers and those boundaries to show us who really belong to him. And then, please understand, that wall was closed to him before he knew Christ because the true church of God is to be proclaimed and announced as we understand it. However, when he trusted in Christ, those barriers were completely removed and he was brought into fellowship with the family of God there at North Shore. And now he is here worshiping with us at Redeeming Grace. There are times, many times, when people get it wrong. There are occasions in the early church that we see they got it wrong about who was actually saved. Jude refers to people like this in verse 4 of his book. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. How did they get in there unaware? How, were, how was everyone clueless that these people were enemies of the cross? These are ungodly people, he calls them. It's because we can sometimes miss it and get it wrong. Church discipline exists to call Christians to repentance, and the goal is always to restore and to reconcile what has been broken by sin. However, when someone refuses to repent and continues chasing after their sin, the Bible teaches us that what we are to do is to remove that person from the church. When we do that, we are declaring to the world, we think we got this one wrong. We think that this person is actually not a believer because they are not living like a believer. This person is outside of the bounds of Christian, what Christians are called to be. Now, I know people and I love people. I have friends that will tell me that what I have just said is incredibly unloving. But please understand, we discipline our children because we love them. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. And we are called as the church to follow the directives that we are given in the New Testament to display love to the body, to keep the church pure. When Paul begins this metaphor <clears throat> here about the big house, <clears throat> he is developing this picture uh, with having this mixed nature of the church at Ephesus in mind. The church there is gathering, but there are people in it that are saved, and there are people who are gathering in that congregation who are not saved. And he is going to clarify more about being godly in the midst of ungodly false Christians, which brings us nicely now to point number two. Now that we know what the big house is, let's consider two kinds of vessels. Look again at the beginning of the text in verse 20. Now, in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, if you're paying close attention, you may notice that there are actually four kind of vessels that he mentions here. But these four kinds are divided into two groups. On the one hand, you have precious, honorable vessels, 
vessels made out of gold and silver. Back then, those were precious metals. Today, those are precious metals. Those are the things that people do not just randomly throw away. On the other hand, you have, uh, well, on the one hand, you have the precious. On the other hand, you have the common vessels, the ones made of wood and clay. Gold and silver are obviously the ones that are to be prominently displayed in the home. The picture that is being given is that they are treasured. These are the things that stick around. We are entering now the fall, which means we are almost to winter, which means everyone is stocking up on Kleenexes. And I have known many people in my life, and I have known many frugal people in my life, people who find ways to pinch pennies and save coins everywhere they go, but I have never known somebody so frugal that they would use a Kleenex and they would fold it back up and put it back into the box to be reused again later. That is not its purpose. It is intended to be used and then eliminated, destroyed, cast out. And then here we see in this picture what he is talking about. There are things in the house that are not intended to remain there. They are temporary. It is not intended to be put on display. It is not intended to be used. That's the imagery that Paul is getting at here with these two types of vessels. Some are vessels of grace that God is going to use and to adorn his home with them. And there are those who are not. Warren Weiserby says it this way. He says, Paul is not distinguishing between kinds of Christians. So there's not just like the the gold and silver kind and the, the wood and clay kind. No, he's not talking about kinds of Christians, but rather he is making a distinction between true teachers of the word and false teachers. I like the way George Knight explains it. He says it similarly in his commentary this way. He says, gold and silver vessels are esteemed as honorable because they are for honorable functions. Similarly, wood and earthenware vessels are regarded as dishonorable because they are used for garbage or excrement or sometimes thrown out with their context in uh, their contents. End quote and well said. So who are these dishonorable vessels? That's a really important question for us to see. They are the same people that Paul is talking about back in verse 18. They are the people who have wandered away from the truth. The dishonorable vessels are the same ones who are teaching false doctrines and also the people who are following the people who are teaching the false doctrines. Now, I hope this metaphor is stirring you up a little bit. I hope that the metaphor of these vessels is causing you to be invigorated in some way internally. I hope it's like a a bee's nest that somebody is pummeling with a baseball bat right now that you are not sitting there just completely inoculated to what I am saying. And perhaps it troubles you. I hope it does. Perhaps it troubles you because of the way that it speaks about people in different categories. Perhaps you think it's problematic that it says that God would view some people as honorable and others as dishonorable. However, this kind of language is not unique to the book of 2 Timothy. In Romans chapter 9, verses 20 through 23, it says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will, this, will what is molded say to its molder, Have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? The same exact terminology Paul is using here. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory? By saying this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he is telling Timothy, there are some people in your gathering who are set apart for destruction, who are not part of the elect, who are not part of the kingdom of God. They are trouble. And he's saying there is a group that are the redeemed who Christ came to die for. If this sermon is difficult for you because you are not comprehending the sovereignty of God, you have rejected his authority, you don't like that he has a sovereign choice over who and who are not his people, I get it. I completely understand. And the reason I understand is because I was there. It is a doctrine that I wrestled with for a long time. It is one that I fought against. And I would even go so far as to say I hated it, but it's clear that the Bible teaches it. And it took a long time and good brothers in the faith and late nights with my Bible and wise authors and debates and confusion and a lot of study before God finally softened my heart to realize it's not only something I should agree with, it's something I should rejoice in and celebrate the fact that God 
chose a people to redeem because the ultimate answer is if he didn't do that, then there would not be a people of God. If God did not choose to elect his people, no one ultimately would be saved. And I delight in that, the fact that he did. Because without this, without this glorious doctrine of election, I would never have an opportunity to be with Christ in heaven. And neither would you. But I've come to understand this doctrine of sovereign election through many difficult conversations. And if you are saying, this is challenging to me because of the idea that some people are just not going to be saved, please talk to me. I want you to understand that the Bible is very clear about what, uh, what God is doing in the world. And I want you to understand that to the best of your ability. But perhaps you're completely comfortable with the teaching of God's sovereignty and God's sovereign choice in election. Perhaps, I assume, most of us in this room are comfortable with that. Because we teach that regularly here at the church. I'm assuming that you're okay with the idea that God has selected a people for himself. Perhaps was buzzing around in you like a bunch of bees is this question. Am I an honorable vessel or am I a dishonorable vessel? And that is a good thing to be stirred up about. It is something that Paul is writing to Timothy to stir him up like that. Ultimately, I can't answer that question for you. I can't tell you whether or not you are a vessel of honor or a a vessel of dishonor. That's exactly what I was saying earlier about the visible and invisible church. I see you and I can think in my mind that you are saved, but I cannot tell you for certain that you are. That is between you and the Lord. Let me tell you what it means to be saved and how you get there. You can try everything you want. You can, you can make a list of everything it would take to be the best person you think has ever lived. And you could follow that list to the letter and you would not be saved. You could do a lot of good things for a lot of bad people and you would not be saved. You could be better than anyone else that is currently alive in the world today and you would not be saved because that is not the criteria the Bible gives us for what it means to become a Christian. The Bible teaches that we are sinful. We are evil. We are bad. Very simply put, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that is a problem because we have to be perfect in order to encounter the love of God forever in heaven. So how do we get from completely imperfect to completely perfect? There is no middle ground. There is no gray. And the answer is that we can't. But Jesus came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life. All the ways that you've messed up, Jesus succeeded. All the ways that you have sinned, Jesus never failed. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus lived obediently before the Lord. He lived a perfect life, unlike you and I, and the wages of sin is death. So we deserve it. But Jesus died. If the wages of sin is death and Jesus died, he did not deserve it, yet he experienced it. How did that take place? It took place because the God of the universe sent his only son to take on the sin of his people, the elect that we were speaking about earlier, the true church, everyone who would ever come to know Christ in a saving way. He collected all of their sins in a bundle and placed them on his own shoulders and he went to the cross and was nailed there. Not only was he being persecuted and punished physically by men, by the Romans and by the Jews who manipulated the process to get him there. No, that is not the only thing taking place. He was also experiencing experiencing the full wrath and penalty of our sin that is being poured out on him by God the Father. Please understand how much God loves us. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who God has loved eternally and infinitely, he has taken this son that he has always loved in this way, and now he has taken that love away? And instead, given all of his wrath to him. That is love. And that is the kind of love that the Father has had for us. Because he loved us enough that he would allow his son to take our place. So how do you become a Christian? How do you get saved? How do you know that you're a vessel of honor? You become a vessel of honor by trusting in Jesus Christ. Trusting that he died for your sin and that it was on his shoulders. And that when he died and the Father poured out his wrath, he took that from me and has given me his righteousness. And that when Jesus rose again, he rose again as a promise that I would live forever with God in heaven. And he is risen and ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning as my king right now. If you believe that and have placed your faith in that, not just in an intellectual way, but in a fully a trusting and faithful way, and you live based upon that, we can see that it's a reality in your life. Then you are saved. Please understand, salvation 
is at the core of what it means to be an honorable vessel. Are you an honorable vessel? The question is, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul and forgiveness of your sin? So Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, not because he's trying to crush him. He's not trying to smash him and just say, I want your life to be miserable. He is trying to help him. He is not trying to break him or discourage him. Quite the opposite. His goal is to strengthen him in the faith. But the way that he encourages him is to clarify the danger of false teachers that exist in the church. And he tells him to cleanse himself, separate himself from those that are dishonorable. So all you must have in order to be saved is be an honorable vessel to trust in the gospel. However, an honorable vessel will necessarily act like an honorable vessel. Please understand what I'm saying. Your relationship with God is personal, but it is not private. It is lived out in front of other people. So from this point forward, Paul is going to explain how an honorable vessel is called to live a holy life in front of others. And this is what all who truly trust in Christ are called to do. Every one of you who say that you are an honorable vessel, everyone who says they are a Christian, are called to live like this. Which brings us now to point number three, avenues for pursuing holiness. Let's follow the logical progression here in the flow of thought that Paul is giving. There is a false doctrine that is growing like cancer in the church. It is spearheaded by the two men that Gene preached about last week, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Paul compares Timothy, and by extension all those who follow him and all who are truly saved, with golden trophies that would be displayed in a prominent house. And he compares Hymenaeus and Philetus, and by extension all those who follow them, to a common household good that is disposable. So now Paul says to Timothy, you must cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. So what exactly is Paul telling Timothy to do? In what way is he called to cleanse himself? The logical flow of the argument here reveals that Paul is telling Timothy, separate yourself from false teachers. How does that take place in his local situation? We don't know. Is he telling him to cast them out of the church by excommunication? Probably. Or is it possible that they have become the majority and the authority? And so Timothy is now the minority. Perhaps he is telling him, separate yourself by leaving. There's a debate in the theological scholarship world that argues which of these is taking place. And the ultimate answer is, I don't know. But the result is the same either way. Separation. Get away from them. Avoid them. Reject them. Do not call them children of God. But please understand why. It's because their teachings and their belief compromise the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is saying something very similar when he argues that the church of Corinth has got to avoid the faction who denies the resurrection. His pithy kind of self-evident plea in 1 Corinthians 15.33, which you probably all have memorized, is this, bad company ruins good morals. He is telling the people in that passage, stay away from false teachers. That's what that verse is actually about. Stay away from them because they are going to corrupt you. What was the primary issue there in Corinth? It's that they were teaching that the resurrection was not real. But what is it going to corrupt? Their morals. They're going to begin to live ungodly lives because people who are not genuinely saved are not going to be genuinely sanctified and transformed into the image of Christ. So by following and continuing to to, uh, spend time with and associate with these false teachers, you're going to begin to look more like them. So what were these false teachers proclaiming in Ephesus? Why is it that they were a problem? What, what is this guy Philetus actually saying? What was the specific way that they had left the truth? What aspect of the gospel was under fire that would necessitate such drastic action? We don't know. We're not sure. But what we do know, and we can see clearly as we read this passage, is some of the problematic results in their lifestyles. We don't know exactly how they deviated from the simple nature of the gospel, but we do know that it resulted in a lack of holiness and godliness in their lives. Look at your Bibles again. Zoom in on verses 21 and 22. And as I read these words, put yourself in Timothy's shoes. And as you follow along carefully, and as you hear the importance that Paul places on specific Christian behaviors, you should begin to get a better sense of the kind of lives that he is calling Timothy to, which is the opposite of the lives of the false teachers. You see their problem by the way Timothy is being told, don't be like them. It says this, Therefore, 
If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Before we go any further, this is probably simply a good time to ask the question, do you want to be useful to the Lord? Or as he puts it in this metaphor, do you want to be useful as a vessel to the master of the house? Do you want to be used by God? I think this is a really important thing for Christians to revisit in their life. Perhaps you say the answer is yes, but you're relying on something that took place in your life a decade ago, and you're not actually considering, am I excited about that right now? Am I desirous to be useful for the master of the house now? I assume for most of you, you would say initially when I asked the question, do you want to be used by God? Do you want to be useful to the master of the house? Your immediate knee-jerk reaction would be to simply answer the question, yes, yes I do. But people say all sorts of things. People say they believe many sorts of things. A couple years ago, I was sharing the gospel at Queen Center Mall with a man. It's one of the more bizarre conversations I've had. He had a strange mix of beliefs. He was kind of a combination of Eastern pantheistic monism and neo-Darwinian atheism. And as I was discussing this with him, at one point he told me, nothing matters. Nothing matters because nothing is real. I'm not real. You're not real. Nothing is real in this universe. Nothing is real. It's just a fever dream of some kind of mindless, soulless computer or simulator. And as we talked, I, I tried to show him that he didn't actually believe that. You don't actually believe that that's true. If he did, he wouldn't eat anything. If he did believe that was true, then he wouldn't pay his rent, and he wouldn't be going to college, and he wouldn't get a job. He didn't treat the bank like it was imaginary. He didn't treat his wardrobe like it was imaginary. The only things that he really treated as imaginary were God and God's standards. But many Christians are just as delusional as that man. Many Christians will say that they believe they are called to holiness, but then when the rubber meets the road, there is very little difference between their lifestyle when compared to the average person. In fact, what's more dangerous is that there's no difference between their ultimate affections and the average person. It's not that they just don't do things, they don't even desire to live for Christ, to be godly, to be holy. Earlier today, Luke was reading from Isaiah, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18 and following, Paul quotes that passage as an argument for living godly lives. He says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, <clears throat> says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall have sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then Paul continues and says, Since therefore we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's a lot of stuff to say in a short period of time. But he's saying Jesus died to save you. And he did not save you just to continue living off of this disgusting filth in the world as you consume it. But he is preparing you for a feast of heaven. Be holy because he commands it. First Peter chapter 14, uh, 1 verses 14 through 19 says it this way. It says, as obedient children, meaning uh, when you grow up, you look like your parents, you imitate your parents, you will do the things that your parents do, probably more than you will do the things your parents say for you to do. He says, as obedient children, as imitators in other words, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, that's a lot of stuff in a short period of time. What is Peter saying there? He is saying that God has called us to be holy, and his standards are not arbitrary. They are based on who he is. Be holy as I am holy. Be holy for he is holy. He is saying, he is calling us to be holy because he wants us to be like him. 
And he didn't just command us to do it. He also spent the blood of his own son so we actually could. He is incredibly invested in our holiness. Jesus' death and his burial and resurrection is all the motivation that you ever need to live a holy life, to pursue godliness, to chase after what it means to be like Christ. J.C. Ryle uh, defines holiness this way. He says, Holiness is the habit of being in one mind with God, according uh, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. So if you look back at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, you will see several very specific ways that you are called to pursue holiness. So for the rest of our time that we have this morning, we're simply going to look at these avenues for holiness that Paul gives us to apply, and we're going to go through them and see how these things make us useful as vessels in the kingdom of God. First, he says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. There are really only three occasions on which I hear people saying the word pursue in our modern language. I hear this very rarely. And the three scenarios that it often this word is often utilized is, first of all, when people are choosing a career path. I'm going to pursue this path or another. Or when people are talking about a police chase. The police are in pursuit of someone. Or when Christian young people are talking about dating. He is pursuing her. All of those scenarios have this weight behind them. You chase the career that you want. You strive. You study. You get up early. You stay home. You stay up late. You fight against all of the people who are competing with you by being the best you can possibly be in that job so that you will be the one that gets the promotion. You are seeking the job that you want. You are pursuing it. New Yorkers get that. Police, they flip on those lights, they start flying down the street in pursuit of a suspect. No red light is going to stop them. There is nothing that will cause them to stop chasing that perpetrator unless they actually end up smashing their car into something. They will continue pursuing. I don't have to give you any examples. You've seen many times what it looks like when young people fall in love. They don't even realize that they're being rude to the people that they are around by completely ignoring that they're there. They are in a room with a hundred people, and the only people they see are each other. They are completely oblivious to the fact that anyone else is even in their vicinity. We are called to flee youthful passions, but we are also called to pursue, like young lovers, pursuing one another's hearts, righteousness. We are called to pursue what it means to do good and right and the things that please God. We are called to be righteous. So what is righteousness? It means, very simply, Doing the things that are right. Well, that's the big question. How do we know what is right? God makes it clear to us. He's not been vague about this. He's told us what his desire is for us in the word of God. Secondly, we are called to pursue faith. Now, this word here could mean faithfulness. Some translations will call it faith and others faithfulness. It's hard to know exactly what Paul is getting at, but the result is the same either way. Edmund Hebert defines this particular word for faith as sincere and dynamic confidence in God. So what are we actually supposed to pursue here? You are supposed to pursue sincere and dynamic confidence in God. And you will experience tests all the time about whether or not you actually have a sincere and dynamic confidence. It will be tested every time you are tempted. Do I actually have faith that God loves me and has given me this this structure, this command, this standard, because he knows it's better for me? Or do I trust my own desire and think that the garbage that this world has is actually going to be more fulfilling and satisfying and sustaining than the trust and then trusting that God knows what he's doing? You're going to be tested every time there's outside pressure on you. Is your faith sincere? Is it dynamic? Is it capable of going under the stress and standing firm? Your faith is not going to grow by accident. You and I are called to cultivate it to develop it, to seek it, to pursue it, to become more richly convinced of the grace of God every day. There is an equation that is always true in the Bible and is that faith results in obedience. Faith manifests itself in believing that God's will is better than my will. His standards are there to protect me, not harm me. He loves me like a shepherd loves his flock and so he is going to shepherd me through life. So as we pursue faith, 
We begin to believe these things. And not just as platitudes, not just as sayings, not just as Hallmark cards or plaques on our walls. We believe these things as genuine, heartfelt realities. I trust God, so I will obey Him. Thirdly, we are called to pursue love. Now, we could sit here on this command for a long time. We could, this could be a very, 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 very long sermon. But we're going to keep it very simple this morning. One scholar summarizes love this way. He says, love consists of self-sacrifice, living for the good of others with caring actions, and thus it is the badge of discipleship. It is the landmark of heaven. For as Jesus declared, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. There are some men in the church who are gathering monthly here at RGF, and we gather monthly so we can go deeper in our understanding of what it means to be involved in ministry. It's just a recent thing that has started up. And together we are reading right now this month through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 as we consider what it means to pursue love as the foundation for serving other people with our gifts. And I encourage everyone in the church to join us in meditating upon those two chapters this month. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. It's very easy to remember. If you've got your Bible, just jot it down. Read those and ask yourself, do I actually love the church? Now, listen, I I love our, our little church. I love the people here. I love this church. And there's honestly no other place in the world that I would rather be and no other church in the world I would rather worship God with. And I think that our church does love each other. However... As I meditate on these words, I see so many ways that we fall short of what it means to love like Jesus did. About how we have room to grow. How can we become more like Christ in the way that we view other people? Are you critical? I am. Are you easily offended? Are you quick to ascribe evil motives to other people? Are you generous with your time? Are you desirous to spend meaningful and enjoyable conversation and discussion about the word of God with other people? Or would you prefer just to have that alone time and nothing else with the Lord? I could just keep going and going and going, but I plead to you, church that I love, do not just be a nice church. Love one another with brotherly affection, sincerely and sacrificially, always considering the needs of others as more significant than your own. Pursue love. And now we move to our final application, which is to pursue peace. Romans chapter 14, verse 19, I think, helps us to understand what Paul is probably getting at here in this specific phrase. He says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding or mutual edification. Obviously, Paul is not telling Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to pursue peace at all expense, at the expense of the truth, for example. He is not telling Timothy to ignore the fight that is going to take place with these two false teachers. He is not telling Timothy to ignore the problems that were troubling the church at Ephesus just so people would simply get along. So there's a problem. There's this gangrene. Just go home. Just ignore it. There's this cancer arising. Don't worry about it. We'll check back in on it in a year or two. No, that is not how he approaches the issue. He says, fight against it. Separate yourself. But... Even as Paul is telling Timothy to cut off false teachers like a toe infected with gangrene, he is also commanding him to seek the unity of the true church as they seek to be at peace with one another. This is not in my notes, but I just should probably tell you that people who have good doctrine are oftentimes the most contentious people I've met. And they, I believe they love Jesus. And I know this partially because I have been there and sometimes I'm still there. Love Jesus very much and they love truth very much. And their way of showing that they love truth is trying to tear down everyone who is not exactly where they are. Paul is saying, pursue peace. There are people within this body who have varied perspectives in certain acceptable areas of doctrine where there can be discussion about the differences between us. You don't have to be exactly on the same page in every area, but there are essentials. He is telling Timothy with those things that are essential, that are heresies, cut those people off. With those things that are not, seek peace and pursue it. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. True believers 
will begin more and more to exemplify this aspect of Christ-likeness in the way that they unify the body of Christ with their words and with their actions. How are you seeking to be peaceable? How are you seeking to be peaceable in this church? How are you seeking to be peaceable in your home? Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He is the one who came to make rebels, people like you and I, who were running in opposition as zealots against God and to make us not only his friends, but to make us citizens of his kingdom and to make us his own children. So church, I, I hope you are encouraged by this. I hope that you are blessed by this. I hope that you are invigorated by the gospel right now to go out and to live holy lives for Christ. I hope that you view this closing prayer that I'm about to give as a starting pistol for you to get out there and to be like Jesus and to recognize that every morning when you wake up, you're not there yet and to strive for holiness and to pursue it so that we can be useful in the kingdom of God. And I hope that each and every one of us will be honorable vessels, useful to the master. Let's pray. God, I thank you for all of the things that we have read here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Lord, I pray that today there would be clarity in the hearts of the people in terms of what they are called to do. Many of the things that we have seen in this text are broad and they are general, which on occasion lead people to only apply broadly and generally rather than specifically. But God, I pray that today as people meditate upon these words of 2 Timothy, I pray that you would impress upon them specific ways that they are called to pursue righteousness where they are currently not pursuing righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would give them clarity about how to pursue faith where they are not currently pursuing faith and love and peace where they are not currently pursuing them. God, I ask that you would cause us to be more like Jesus, that you would give us a passion for righteousness and holiness, not out of a sense of legalism, but motivated by the fact that you sent your perfect spotless son to be a uh, to be a sacrifice for us. Lord, I thank you that you have saved us not only to continue to live as we were, but to be more like Jesus every day. God, please move us along that process of sanctification. Cause us to be more like Jesus. God, I ask that today as we see these things, we would not lay back and give up and just wait for heaven, but that we would strive to run after you with all that we have, pursuing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.